Ace is the place with the helpful hardware, folks. It's Ace's biggest LED light bulb sale of the year. Right now, buy one, get one free on our best-selling LED light bulbs. Our four-pack of LED bulbs is $9.99, and our two-pack of LED floodlights is only $12.99. Buy one, get one free. There's no limit on how much you can save, so stock up now. Hurry in. Buy one, get one free on long-lasting 10-year LED bulbs, now through Monday, only at your neighborhood Ace. See participating stores for details. You're locked on Warriors, your daily Golden State Warriors podcast. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to bring you your team every day. I wanted to continue the Reddit mailbag, and I'm going to go through these quicker because there are a lot of questions. So I'm going to start with the first one from SuperBacon807. What are the Warriors' biggest needs going into the offseason? And this depends a little bit on who leaves and who stays, but broadly speaking, it's center because all three of their centers who got meaningful minutes, West, McGee, and Pachulia, are all going to be free agents. Some of them might stay, some of them might go, but that's a big deal. And then the other ones is just whoever leaves. So if Sean Livingston goes somewhere else, then you need to replace him. If Iguodala goes somewhere else, you need to replace him. And they won't have many tools to use it. What they have depends a little bit on what Durant chooses, but pretty much it's going to be a mid-level exception of some form and then cap space. So center is A1 and then everything else is dependent on what everybody else does. Question from uh, Luis or Louis underscore Winthrop underscore four. From the reports, it seems like Mike Brown is pushing for more pick and roll rather than a strict adherence to the motion offense. Seeing as how ball movement is what allowed Boston to win game three and they stayed competitive in game four, is that a mistake? I think you want to incorporate pick and roll as a part of what you what the Warriors do, but not have it be the whole thing. And and it is true that when the starters are on the floor, running a Curry, Durant, or more likely a Curry Green pick and roll does open up a lot for other guys because of the pressure that Curry puts on it. And I think that it's also easier when the refs aren't calling as much off ball to get calls with Curry when he has the ball in his hands. So that's something worth considering as well. I talked about that a little bit in in yesterday's show. But I think overall, it's a good thing that you want to be open to it. And the Warriors ran it a lot in 2015 when they ended up winning in the finals, especially when they went to Draymond at center. And that'll also be interesting in terms of how they use Pachulia because Pachulia is a good screener. And that's not necessarily a pick and roll in the rigid sense. It's more of just using a ball screen, but they can incorporate that as well. So I think you want to use it as a piece of the offense, but only really focus on it if the opponent, presumably Cleveland, can't stop it. And so I think it's a good idea to to use it as a, as a piece of the puzzle, but not the whole puzzle. Question from Carnivorous Shrimp. Who should the Warriors have signed instead of Jason Thompson a couple years ago? This is a good clarification. The Warriors did not sign Jason Thompson. They traded for Jason Thompson that was originally unloading David Lee's contract, and they did that for Gerald Wallace, and then they traded Gerald Wallace for Jason Thompson. I actually didn't love the Jason Thompson part of that move. The reason why is that it saved it saved ownership money in the short term, but it added a little bit of long-term money because he had that partial guarantee, which is actually still on the Warriors' books for this season and next season, but it's not that much money. It didn't stop them from getting Durant. It's probably not going to affect them that much this summer. So they never signed Jason Thompson. There was nobody else they they really should have signed in front of him. And he was a worthwhile kind of flyer to see if he was going to work with the team. He ended up not working, but that's what happens. Question from Jabajaw: Are the Warriors conserving energy? If so, how important is energy conservation coming down the stretch? I don't think they're necessarily doing it as a deliberate strategy. I think it's more of something where They've been winning these games by a lot, and they haven't needed to push their starters that hard. It really does have value in two ways. One is just the idea of freshness, and you know that you, when you don't have to strain as much, you can get back to it. And the second part is being on an NBA floor during a game 
always carries a risk of injury and so does practice so does everything else but you know guys are flying around especially if you're playing with maximum energy which when you're on the floor you should be there is that risk of injury and so the fewer minutes guys play the the lower that risk is and you know like what happened to Kyrie what happened to Kawhi you know various injuries it's just kind of bad luck and happenstance and so being on the floor creates that more and in terms of whether it'll help the Warriors moving forward my instinct is yes I think that it will allow them to go a little bit more in the finals but but they would have had enough time to recover considering the long breaks that they've had. So I think it helps a little bit, but more in the injury reduction realm and the fact that they've been able to be fresh at the end of games and guys aren't tired. You see all that in the in the OKC series, Westbrook and sometimes Harden looked gassed in the fourth quarter, and that's because they were pushing really hard. The Warriors haven't had to do that yet, but they might have to soon. From Helicase 21, does the beginning of game one against the Spurs validate to, to some extent the rust is greater than rest narrative? I don't think that it does because part of what the Warriors did, or more accurately what the Spurs did, was they had a better game plan and they executed it. And that wasn't really a rest-rust issue. That was just the Spurs having this idea of what they wanted to do and really executing it. And San Antonio, like the Warriors, they do a really good job of forcing the other team's offense to stagnate. And the Warriors hadn't really faced anybody like that so it's not like prepare. they couldn't really prepare for it. I mean, they could do some stuff in practice, but teams don't usually go full bore. So I don't think it necessarily says definitively in that way, but it, it is a point in that and something to watch in game one of the finals is things like turnovers and sloppy ball handling, because those can be hard sometimes to adjust. Maybe you need a quarter or two to really work it out. And that was a part of what the Warriors did badly. And I think that's the part that you can attribute to Rust. And depending on their opponent, you know, that could be meaningful enough to make a game close. I mentioned this when I talked with Andy Liu, that the Warriors have lost a fair amount or been threatened in a fair amount of game ones over the last couple of years. And so that matters in this series. And so they need, they'll need to be on. So something to watch. Question from Renzo B6. How is it possible that refs never give Golden State the credit they're due? This is not the way that I like to phrase the issue. And think about the Warriors in terms of the way that officiating is just done broadly. The Warriors do shoot a lot in the restricted area, but most of it is through these more uncontested plays, either in transition or because the other defense just completely broke. Like you think think about those Kevin Durant dunks. Those plays, you're not going to get fouled. They do a lot of ball movement and player movement. Ball movement, player movement is all good, but it's harder to draw fouls that way because it's not the kind of contact that referees call in, in the current in NBA, there has been a much greater emphasis on calling things on ball than calling it off. And that's a real downside for the Warriors. It's it's unfortunate, and it's not the way that I wish the game was officiated, but it's the way that things are for right now. So the Warriors don't really force referees to make those calls, whereas LeBron James bowling into the lane, James Harden doing everything that he does, they use the way that the NBA is officiated to their advantage. And that is to their credit. That's just the way the league is right now. So I don't think the Warriors push the issue in that way. And then I think they get a lot of credit on the defensive end. They swipe at the ball more than any team in the league, and they don't get called that often, partially because they get ball fairly frequently and partially because they have the respect of the refs. And while that's not the same thing as offense and people focus on it a lot, I think the Warriors get away with a fair amount defensively, and that really helps them work. And that's why when a game is called uniformly tighter, like what happened in Game 5 of the Finals, it happened in the Oklahoma City series after Draymond was not suspended from that game, that game was called, I think it was Game 4, was called super tight. And that hurts the Warriors because they don't generate as much contact that gets called as other teams offensively, and they do a ton of that stuff defensively. So that's really why it ties together. But I don't think it's about respect at all. It's just about the way they play and the way that the game is officiated.
Question from Oliver underscore Stacks. Why did Golden State send somebody to scout uh, Frank Telkina, who's a French point guard, when the Warriors do not have a lottery pick? So I don't know for sure if they did or they didn't send somebody. It's not something that I know, but I'll answer the question as it's asked. And it's because it is good for a front office if they have the resources to know everything that they can, because not only is it the possibility that they could get Tolkina in the draft this year, maybe they trade somebody, maybe something happens, but knowing that information now, getting a better sense of him, is information that's useful the whole time. You know, how he deals with his teammates, how he deals with his coaching, how he deals with the fans in a very different setting. That could be relevant three, four years down the line if maybe he comes available when he's he wasn't happy where he is, something like that. And that kind of scouting can really help you later on. And you could think about a player that especially is put in an unfavorable circumstance. So Nick Stauskas is a great example here. So granted, he hasn't worked out perfectly in Philly, but the more information you have on a guy when he's drafted and everything else, then you can filter out the stuff that was maybe noise related to the circumstance that he was in and what is legitimate. And so you want to do that because you never know who's going to become available. That is something happens. And Anthony Bennett's another good example of this. You know, Anthony Bennett washed out of Cleveland, but maybe a team could have felt like, hey, he didn't get a fair shot or something like that. And it also can work the other way. If you see a guy and you think, oh, he's he's not that good. Here's what he does well. Here's what he doesn't do well. And then all of a sudden he shines somewhere else. And then you're talking about a trade then you have that other information to fall back on. So I am a full supporter if a team has the resources to know everything they can about everywhere, because not only do you not know what prospects are going to come up in the immediate, you really don't know how that market's going to change over a couple of years. And so there are all sorts of circumstances where that can benefit you. And even guys like JaVale McGee, I'm sure that the Warriors knowing him through various stops was more useful. They even played him in the playoffs back in 2013. I think that information can be very useful moving forward just because it gives you a, a breadth of knowledge about an individual, about a team. And who knows, maybe somebody else playing in that game is going to be interesting moving forward too. You never really know. And that's part of what scouting is about too, is keeping your eyes and ears open for whatever comes around. Question from uh, Creighton Pizza. What are the chances of the Warriors go 16-0? and So uh, functionally at this point, that's what are the chances the Warriors sweep in the finals? I'd put it at like 10 to 15% for me right now, just because... I feel like they're going to face Cleveland. Cleveland is a very good team. I think the Warriors have the advantage, and I'm sure some are going to say, oh, it should be closer to like 20-25%, but I respect LeBron James a lot, and I respect Cleveland's variance. So while I think the Warriors are the favorites in the finals, regardless of who they face, it's still hard if it's the Cavs, which I assume it will be, to beat them four times in a row. They have a very talented offense, and while their defense can be inconsistent, seeing them put it together for one game would not be a surprise at all, and they've done that in both of the finals. They even, you know, they won two games from the Warriors in the finals in 2015 when Kyrie and Kevin Love didn't play. So I'd have it in that 10 to 15% range. And if it's Boston, then it's a lot higher than that. But I don't think that's going to happen. If they had won game four, then, you know, maybe you incorporate that into the odds a little bit. But I'm not, they're probably not going to win. By the time many of you listen to this, that game will already be over. So we'll know. Question from, oh, wow, that's a lot of consonants. I'm not going to read that one. Um, I'll, re- I'll read the question, of course. Do you think it's a good idea to utilize the KD Curry pick and roll? I think that you want to incorporate it at points. I admit to kind of overly thinking and to a point gushing about this before the season just because it's so intellectually interesting. But part of why it's a challenge is that Durant doesn't particularly set good screens and it doesn't open up as many opportunities for other people as I thought it was. I still think they should use it more than they have, but the Warriors' two best screeners are Draymond Green and, and Zaza Pachulia. Both those guys you know, can, can open up Curry to a larger degree there. And Durant, I think that they want to use him 
attacking on switches, but you don't have to generate those switches using him in the in the primary action. You can do that a lot of other ways, and they did that in the Portland game in particular. That he, you know, you can do that by him making a cut or him, you know, coming off a screen that doesn't involve being the screener. I think that's there. And then the other one that they can use more, and they have done this, is using Curry as the screener. And I think he's he's in many ways better of a screener, not only because he's more willing, but because they let small guards get away with murder on screens. It's just one of the things with the NBA right now. So that can work well, whether it's as the primary ball handler or just kind of off a screen itself. That's another thing that the Warriors can do that is an interesting advantage for them. Question from uh, YEJs. Do you think the Cavs are going to sag off Draymond from three all series? I don't think they will all the time. And why this is so interesting partially is because Draymond spends a lot of time above the break. So, you know, that's the deeper threes, not in the corner. And if you want to play a part in the action to really defend around the rim and the paint or something like that, you're not only sagging off them, you're basically leaving the guy wide open. And that is a very different concession than helping from the corner, which is not only a shorter distance because the three is shorter, but just in terms of the logistics of helping, it can be a lot easier. So the way the Warriors position him is going to be important. And then the other part of why sagging is incredibly significant in terms of the series is because you cannot sag off of a screener because if you sag off of a screener and Draymond sets a screen for Curry, sets a screen for Thompson, then that guy's going to be open. That's just the way it works because unless the guy that's defending that player can scramble around it, sagging off means that nobody's going to be there. And you can also deal with that through miscommunication, a lot of other stuff. So I think that they will have somebody closer to Draymond than some think just because the Warriors system doesn't allow you to get to move totally off of somebody in that same way if they're involved in the action. That's very different from somebody like Harrison Barnes, who basically just chilled in the corner and maybe you want to help off him because you can get a closeout. That's very, very different. And the Warriors don't really have many of those guys on their roster anymore. So I think that defending them now is substantially harder than it was before. And again, I've talked at length before about the idea that the reason the Warriors got Durant beyond the fact that he's a really good player was four series against the Spurs and for the Cavs. And they did lose some depth in everything. I think they've been able to retool full credit to Bob Myers, but defending Kevin Durant, even if he's just standing in the corner like Harrison Barnes was, defending Kevin Durant and defending Harrison Barnes are so different that it's going to cause a lot of challenges for the Cavs, presumably, in the NBA Finals. And I think that's something that fans will appreciate more and more over the course of that series. And then we'll see what Durant can do defensively, because if Durant defensively can can defend LeBron or can be a nice help defender that opens up other things that Barnes couldn't do and he deserved Barnes you know he did a nice job for what he was asked to do for the Warriors but Durant is so much more capable and the trade-off they got was losing some depth and the guys they got back are good they're good in a different way but they're certainly good from uh, I guess it's Kaono. Should the Warriors have kept Spates over Verge out at the start of the season? My understanding, and this is not based on inside information, is that Spates chose to leave. That it was not the Warriors refusing to offer him something. It was that he wanted a different challenge. I think he also wanted more money. And when the Warriors didn't offer, partially because they really couldn't, he felt kind of hurt. And I think that it was mostly his choice. And then whether the Warriors would have had Verge out too or something else. I mean, remember, JaVale McGee was the last guy on this roster. Anderson Verge out was not. So they had a space for Spates if that's what they wanted to do. And 
you know, I thought I think things worked out reasonably well for him with the Clippers. He had a solid year, and now he gets to choose what he wants again. And there's an an outside chance, depending on where the Warriors go, that he could he could be back. I don't know. I haven't talked to anybody who has strong feelings one way or the other on that. But the Warriors are going to be in the market for minimum salary center guys for probably the foreseeable future. So he could be an option there again. This is an interesting one from uh, Bortles Raised at Work. If the Warriors win the championship this year, how do you think the narrative of the 73-9 season last year changes? It changes a lot, and that's just the nature of what history is, is that history is is largely about context and about the story. And when the context changes, then the story changes. And the easiest example for people to probably understand here is the 2011 NBA Finals. So Miami had formed a super team, they come together, and they were good in the regular season. They weren't just mind-blowing. You know, they had some of those moments, but they were still favored in the finals pretty significantly over the Mavericks, from what I remember. They, with a better better system and a couple other things, and also just a little bit better play, they could and should have won the won that championship. They didn't. And so then you got that whole summer of, oh, LeBron and Wade, no, these guys can't win, and LeBron had never won a championship at that point. And then a year later, they win the title, and they beat Oklahoma City, beat that young Westbrook Durant Harden team. And all of a sudden, that whole narrative became prologue. It was, oh, remember when we said LeBron couldn't win a championship? Oh, remember all that stuff? And it immediately made all of that context. And that's exactly what 73 and 9 would become if the Warriors win the title this year. It becomes a part of the story and a smaller story in and of itself. This is actually a challenge I dealt with with writing the book was how do I talk about 73 and 9 with the idea that it's going to change? And so I talked about it more as an accomplishment and and what it meant and how it happened. And then the other big question that is probably going to go unanswered forever, partially because the only person who knows is not necessarily going to answer it honestly, I've asked him about it point blank, is whether Kevin Durant would have come to the Warriors if they had won the title last year. And while the PR nightmare that happened was rough, it would have been substantially worse if he was joining a team that not only won the win- got the wins record, but also won the championship. So I don't know. Maybe he wouldn't have cared. I mean, when you think when you hear some of the quotes around now, maybe he still would have considered it. I think the people around him would have advised him maybe a little bit differently, just because that's a very different commitment. It's a it's a it's a whole from PR standpoint, same thing. From a another standpoint, it's not really a different thing. And also, if Durant let's say he signed a one and one like he did with the Warriors with the Thunder and then was going to look at the next year. If he had done that, then maybe the Warriors re-sign Harrison Barnes. They probably they probably spend some money in a way this past offseason that makes it harder to get Durant. They might, might have been able to move off it just like they did to get him in the first place, but that would have been a different question. And if they would have like let Harrison Barnes go, then they're a very different team this year. And so I think that the narrative will shift based on whatever happens. And of course, the Durant part of it will shift based on how he performs and contributes to whatever happens. But you always want to see something in the the surroundings, the immediate surroundings as a part of a consistently evolving thing. And I think that's why I wanted to bring back the Miami in 2011, because that's what happened there. And there are all sorts of examples of that of like a team. I mean, think back to the when the Warriors blew that game one lead against the Spurs. If that had been the best the Warriors did in the playoffs, you know, the next year they didn't make it out of the first round. They lost to the Clippers. If they hadn't really kicked it into that next year, then that would look like more of a haunting disappointment, more of a what if sort of thing, like some of the playoff collapses that the Warriors have had in prior years, you know, like in generations before. Now it's just like, oh, remember how good they looked in that series? They were more competitive. It's not as much about that they could have actually won that series. It's more about how that fit into the whole thing. Question from Aldernon. 
The Warriors seem to thrive using off-ball actions involving two other players. This leads to their insane assist numbers, as Kobe pointed out in his Golden Democracy short. Uh, why are the Warriors so lead at this type of offense? Do you think it's just personnel? Likewise, do you see other teams trying to adopt it? It's a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. The Warriors are good at it partially because they have amazing personnel for a ball movement and player movement system. They have players that require a lot of individual attention, but that are also talented and willing passers. And so a lot of these players have the ball in their hands less than they would in other systems. I don't think Clay cares about that at all. But you know, Steph Curry, if, if he were in more of like a Toronto style thing, he'd have the ball in his hands more. And I'm sure there are parts of that that he would enjoy. He also enjoys winning. So that works out. And the coaching certainly helps with that too, because the players have accountability. They have a system that makes sense. And it's also been a proven success. They've won a championship. They've made the finals. They've now made the finals a second time, the third time actually. And so that helps too, because that increases the buy-in and that also is part of what makes it possible not only to bring in players for you know low contracts, but to get buy-in from those players. Think about what David West said. If you want to go back to one of the earliest Locked On Warriors episodes, it was kind of me filling in some of the blanks from Media Day and talking to David West about why he chose the Warriors. And he you know he saw the system, he saw everything else, thought he'd be a good fit. And you can bring in players with that knowledge of oh this is this is what I need to do. And if somebody does doesn't buy in, then they're not coming. So that's a a really big benefit that the Warriors have that other teams don't. And will other franchises, will other teams try it? What typically happens in these circumstances, and I think this will be true, is that other teams will dip their toe in the water. They'll try some of the things that the Warriors do. And you already see this a little bit. I mean, whether the people who are obsessed with like elevator doors and stuff, you see other teams try that and some of the other kind of philosophy stuff. But you do need specific personnel to fully incorporate it. So I don't think we're going to see copycats anytime soon because it just won't work because guys will make bad decisions. Their players make the NBA for a wide variety of reasons and basketball IQ and passing help everybody if they can do it, but they are not mandatory. They're players who are elite physically, who don't necessarily have the play recognition or the situation recognition. And a lot of what the Warriors do is also on feel. You know, some of the cuts they make and everything are are designed, but some of them are not. And you can try to replicate that as much as you can, but it's really hard. And then defensively, what the Warriors do is almost impossible to replicate because you need someone like Draymond Green. You need the length that they have. You need the intelligence that they have, the quickness. And I think that end is actually harder to replicate than the offensive one because it's personnel, scheme, execution, physicality, everything. And so teams will try, inevitably they'll try. And some teams will actually try to do it with bigger players, which is fascinating because some of these new age centers can do, you know, they can switch a little bit more, they can help in different ways. So that might be the way that it evolves a little bit too, as you see teams take elements of it. And really this is what you see with the seven seconds or less Suns and their impact on both those Spurs teams and the Warriors now is the Warriors are not running the same stuff D'Antoni ran with Suns, of course not. But there are certain components of that approach, you know, the three-point shooting, moving quickly, focusing on trying to make teams pay in transition, things like that, that were a part of what the Suns did well, not the entirety, that are that the Warriors incorporate and that all these other teams do. And that's really what the legacy is, because replication doesn't necessarily work. Question from uh, Daenerys Flacco, what would be necessary for the Warriors to keep Livingston and Iguodala this offseason? Also, what type of contract do you expect for McCaw next year? So Livingston and Iguodala are are in different situations. I think that if they want to come back, they'll understand that there is a very significant price tag on it. So I would anticipate that both of them, if they want to come back, would be taking less than they could get on the open market. If I had to ballpark it for Livingston, 
I would say something like three years at between seven and nine million. So kind of around the level of the higher, the highest mid-level exception for three years. And for Iguodala, maybe something in like the 10 to 14 million dollar range for three or four years. And then probably the longer it goes, the more likely you are to put some sort of a non-guarantee or a light guarantee on that last year, something that vests with how much time he plays. And it's also reasonably possible that those guys will take even less than that because they know that it's their way to stay on the team and the Warriors are going to be ludicrously expensive in the very near term. So I, I don't feel super confident in that. For Patrick McCaw, he's going to hit the open market, well, not the open market, the restricted market, almost definitely because the extension system is broken. They can't they can't sign to that. He is going to be limited to the Gilbert Arenas provision named after Gilbert Arenas when he left the Warriors and that was in the next CBA. And what that means is a team can't offer him more than the highest middle-level exception. So I don't know that that's going to scale with the cap, but let's ballpark it at like 8.5, 8.6 million for the first two years. And then the third year, you can pay him up to their maximum and f- based on if those other years have been maxes. So I think that he's not, he hasn't proven that he can be at that level yet. So if I had to guess right now, I would say something like, three years, 20 million, 24 million, something like that. But if he gets into a bigger role next year and really performs in it, then you start talking about actually using the arenas provision and maybe something like three years, 40 million or something like that. I I haven't really run through his numbers yet, but the other part that makes it fascinating in terms of the Warriors and McCaw is you have these two competing forces in play. One is the practicality part. So if McCaw is good enough and teams believe that the Warriors are going to match any offer, then you're sitting there going, well, why are we going to tie up our cap space? Why are we going to do all that for a couple days to try to get a guy that we're not going to get? And that usually is, is true. You know, that that's the way that it works. Teams don't want to commit to that. And you also have to wait because restricted free agents can't sign during the moratorium. So you're probably committing to him. But the second part is that you also can get into these circumstances where a team has this money to burn and they just say, screw it. And the best example of this in modern times was the Blazers, actually, with Ennis Canner. So Canner had been traded from the Jazz to the Thunder before that offseason. Everybody knew that the Thunder were going to retain him. They thought they were going to retain him. You know, they'd be willing to max him out. The Blazers, a team in their division who had money to burn and who presumably liked Ennis Canner went, well, we have this money, we're already here, let's just throw it in as Kenner. So they maxed him out three years plus a player option, and then the Thunder matched, which people expected. That contract is not horrendous, but it's also not good. And so they made life worse on a, on a, a team that they probably didn't see as a rival then, but, you know, ended up becoming somebody that they were in the mix with for the, you know, for the bottom seeds in the West and probably will be again next year. So a really nice decision by Olshay considering Oklahoma City match. So we could see a team do that with the Warriors with Patrick McCaw to just basically make them pay. And that's certainly possible, but it's hard to figure out who that would be. And also there's going to be less money around the league than there was then just because teams are spending recklessly right now. And so the idea of spending recklessly is that you're going to lose flexibility because the cap is not going to keep rising the way that it has. So that money's just going to stay on people's books. And so that's going to take teams. I don't know exactly how many yet. I'm still working on that math. It's going to take teams out of the running. And so it'll be worth watching to see who has the ability and who has the interest in trying to screw with the Warriors if that's as basic as it is, or try to actually get McCall if they feel that the Warriors aren't going to match. Question from Sniper236. With the salary cap conundrums of the summer, are there any alternative methods, that's in quotes, for getting players more money? Uh, for example, your NBA contract says we'll pay you $10 million per year, but here's an endorsement deal for $5 million per year. You can't do that. 
straight up, you can't do that. That is circumvention. If a team ever got caught for that, they would get absolutely annihilated. Like that is actually in some ways worse than what the Timberwolves did with Joe Johnson, which was, hey, you sign here for cheap for a couple of years, then we'll get your bird rights, and then we'll pay you a bunch of money. Because at least then the team was doing it. And there was an actual understanding. The X factor in all this. So you basically, you can't use that in your pitch. You can't say, oh, you're going to do all of that kind of stuff, at least not in a specific way. Like, hey, like I'm thinking about Memphis and FedEx. Like, hey, if you came here, then FedEx is going to make you a feature you in your national ads. That's going to make you three million a year. That I think that would be considered circumvention. You can say, oh, there are special opportunities here without mentioning specific ones or specific dollars. And I think it would need to be clear in certain team circumstances that it not be an affiliated company. So like if a person owned an entity, I'm trying to think of the right example of this. Well, like back when Herb Cole owned the book, if Herb Cole had then made Giannis the spokesperson for Coles, that might have been complicated. But the Warriors don't have to deal with that as far as I can tell. However, and this is a big however, the X factor in all this is shoe companies. Because shoe companies, they're independent entities. They can do whatever the heck they want. And they are allowed to have clauses in their contracts that reward players for specific things. That could be winning a championship. That could be making an all-NBA team. That could be scoring X number of points per game. It can also be playing in certain markets. So those contracts are negotiated independently, but they can have a direct financial incentive or they can be given a direct financial incentive. I've, there's some interesting stuff about, you know, whether like Nike was pushing Durant to kind of sign with the Warriors because that would help undercut Under Armour, that sort of thing. So the team can't do it. They absolutely can't. They can't say, hey, if you come here and do that, that's circumvention. But those other entities, and really it is pretty much the shoe companies because they're the ones that have this uh, ability they can they can kind of fill in those gaps themselves, not through the teams. And it can work in largely the same way, but the distinction really, really, really matters. Question from Draining Threes. If the opportunity came to trade Clay for the number one overall pick, should the Warriors pull the trigger since it would make it easier to re-sign everyone else moving forward? No, they shouldn't because Clay Thompson is essential for what the Warriors do well, and there is not a way to replace him with the number one overall pick. Now, if you could maybe move the number one overall pick for whatever reason to another team that had a similar player, maybe, maybe, maybe you'd think about it, but what the Warriors are looking for is they're trying to win as many championships as they can as soon as they can. And trading Clay Thompson makes that materially more difficult. So it's nice to win in the future. It's nice to have a team that's going to be cost controlled for a long time and do everything like that. But that reduces exactly what they want to do right now. And that is not a choice that the Warriors want to make. The second part of this, which is important, is that the Warriors being expensive is a problem more for ownership than anything else. And you could argue the fans with ticket prices and things like that. Their ability to retain Clay Thompson and Draymond Green is not impacted by this. They have full bird rights on those guys. They played on the Warriors for their entire careers. It could get really, really expensive to do it, but they can. And the reason that you might move away from that is that there is some risk involved eventually at, you know, maybe they're going to leave. And if they indicated that they were, then you start to think about that a little bit differently. Like if Clay Thompson said, I don't think that would be this summer, but if he said next summer, hey, Bob, 
I want to see what I can do. I want to be the man on a team. So when I hit unrestricted free agency, I'm want to, I want to try something else, or at least I'm going to be open to it. Then at that point, maybe you say, well, crap, you know, we need to get something for him. We need to do it that way. But that's still years down the line for Clay. So you don't risk it. You don't chance it. You don't like significantly affect your chances of winning a championship for that long-term future. And I really like Markel Fultz and Fultz would be my pick if the Warriors were going to do that. Not necessarily because I think he's the best fit with their current talent, but because he's the best player available in this draft to me. But you don't do it. Not if you're the Warriors. They're almost any other team. Like if they had the exact same circumstance, if they had Clay Thompson for the number one pick, they would do it. But no other team is the odds on favorite to win the NBA championship. The Golden State Warriors are. So the conversation runs very, very differently with them. Question from M. Denzen. What do you think about signing Vince Carter this offseason to a veteran minimum contract? If he wanted to do it, by all means. I think Carter would be a nice addition for their wing rotation. He seems like he's pretty beloved by his Memphis teammates. I don't know what he wants. If he wants to compete for a championship, there's no better place to do it. We don't know how many minutes the Warriors will have to offer because that depends on what Iguodala does. That depends on what Livingston does, what they think about Patrick McCaw and some of these other circumstances. But if he wants it, by all means, by all means. Question from KJ Castro. If the Warriors lose in the finals, would 73-9 or 12-0 be remembered more fondly? So the premise of the question answers this pretty clearly. It'd be 73-9 because either way they would lose the championship. And 73-9 is an indelible accomplishment. It is beating the Jordan Bulls. It is something that every team competes on. And all of the other context stuff that affects 12-0, while it is impressive, you know, Kawhi Leonard missing three and a half games in the series, George Hill missing time, Yusuf Nurkic missing time, none of those kind of caveats, asterisks, apply to 73-9. There's no way to qualify that. There's nothing else that you need to do. That is that is a singular thing that nobody can take away from them. And if they're both, if you're taking the equal parts that they both win a championship, now, if you were to say 73-9 versus 16-0, it gets really complicated. I think 16-0 would be the bigger one there, partially because you win a championship and partially because nobody's done that either. So it's, hist- it's big history versus big history, one of which comes with a championship. So if that were the case, then I would probably probably go 16 and 0 but it, were it not if they're losing it either way then I'm going with 73 and 9 because there are 30 presently 30 teams in the league that are going for the wins record and nobody's been able to to touch 73 and 9 before we'll see if anybody does it in the future but that is an incredible thing and it's it's much more accessible and much less subject to chance and luck and good fortune than a playoff run, especially the playoff run specifically that the Warriors have had. So that's just about everything. I deliberately didn't answer some of the questions on the Cavs on a potential series there because I, do, I have a lot that I'm going to do on that next week for Lockdown Warriors. And partially because when I created the mailbag, I said no questions specifically on the Cavs. So I'm not going to respect all of the questions on that because I specifically asked and I like it when people follow directions. So I have a little bit in there as you guys could hear, but not everything. This is, as I said, the last podcast for the week is coming out on Thursday night slash Friday morning. We'll have a whole week of basically of stuff related to the NBA finals, assuming it resolves before Sunday night, which basically means one of the teams wins in, I think wins in six games. I think it's going to be over by the time most of you listen to this. Could be wrong. I've been wrong before, but get into all that at that point. Very excited for it, of course. And then game one of the finals will be on Thursday. So 
If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, at Danny LaRue on Twitter, or even better, NBA at gmail.com. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I probably don't have the time to respond. I'm very busy, but I'll try if I can. And if you want to support the show, leave a rating, leave a review, spread the word however you want, using Reddit, using social media, using just talking to people. All those things are good. And you can also subscribe and download every episode. Those are huge things to do for this podcast and every other one because downloads are still the measure that we use when we talk to advertisers and everything else like that. And the other thing you could do if you want to is you can pre-order my book now. Uh, it, the 100 Things Warriors Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. It's a part of the series that Triumph Books does. It's a passion project for me. It was so much fun. And it'll come out November 1st, so very beginning of next season. And yeah, you can pre-order it. So that's very cool. And it's on Amazon. It's on Barnes & Noble. I don't know where else it is yet. I haven't gone through. I'm not that obsessed with everything to go through and you're like, oh, it's on this side. Oh, it's not on that side. And it'll, I hopefully it'll be everywhere. And if you want to get it at a local bookstore when it comes out, I support that as well. I'm big on local businesses. So whatever makes you happy and do what you want. But thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.